0: Hello, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Bentley Kaplan. Mike is putting up his feet this week and taking in a little more of the world around him. He'll be back fresh and sizzling next week. On today's show, we are going to get into a couple of heavy-hitting topics, starting with the collapse of a fuel storage tank in the Arctic on the 29th of May, 2020. Now the tank in question belonged to the company Norosk Nickel, a Russian mining company, and the collapse led to 21,000 tons of diesel flowing into the surrounding rivers and subsoils. It is still early days, but the environmental consequences already look pretty grim. For many people, this event has some parallels with a much more famous incident from way back in 1989 when a diesel tanker owned by Exxon ran aground off the coast of Alaska, spilling 37,000 tons of crude oil into the Bering Sea and leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals and birds and long-term impacts to sea life and the communities relying on the surrounding ecosystems. And there is something serendipitous about this timeline because the late 1980s was also a formative period for responsible investment. Events like the Exxon Valdez oil spill and increasing concern around issues like human rights and pollution were pushing investors to take action and ask more probing questions. One of the offshoots from this time was the establishment of the Coalition for Environmentally Responsible Economies, or CERES, a group of investors that is still pushing the envelope in sustainable investing today. And it was actually in 1990 that KLD launched the first Socially Responsible Index. And this index, the MSEI KLD 400, was designed to help socially conscious investors incorporate social and environmental factors into their investment choices. So, happy 30th birthday to the MSEI KLD 400. I'm not exactly sure how you're going to celebrate, but I'm sure it will be a very memorable year. Now, a lot has changed in the responsible investment space since the late 80s and early 90s. Disclosure has ramped up. Things like ESG and impact investing are becoming more front and center in the mainstream investment world. And in 30 years, a lot has changed in terms of how data are collected and scaled. But although a lot has changed, a lot also hasn't. The Norolsk diesel spill is a stark reminder of how history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it sure can rhyme. So on today's show, we are going to try and put this recent environmental incident into context. I'm going to talk to Sam Block and Brendan Baker to see where and how investors can digest this development and what questions to start asking. Thanks for sticking around. Let's do this. First up, I've got Sam Block with me. Here at MSCI ESG Research, he's the lead analyst for the mining industry. And I should also mention that Sam is juggling his work with the emotional roller coaster that comes with being a new parent. And under COVID-19 lockdown, that can mean having your little one drive home some of your points with a well-timed gurgle. So do listen out for those. Sam, thanks for taking the time. Let's start with the Russian company that was behind the recent incident, Norilsk. What are the main things that you know we should be aware of before diving into the specifics of this this recent diesel spill?
1: So Norilsk Nickel is considered one of the largest polluters in the world. Um, it is responsible for an alleged one percent of all SOx emissions in the entire globe. It accounts for something like twenty five percent of all SOx emissions in our MSCI Aqua universe, from you know the companies that disclose that. It is the world's largest nickel producer, and the bulk of, you know, Norilsk nickel assets are in Norilsk. Um, and um, a lot of the Siberian operations are very outdated, and a lot of it's built on permafrost. And it's basically this company is facing a lot of these risks with the physical risk of you know, permafrost melting, how is it going to maintain its production? And a lot of it is based on the strengths of this large infrastructure that it has been using and managing for for a long time.
0: Right, I mean, and that pretty much lines up with um, MSCI ESG researchers assessment of the company. As of the 18th of June, it's sitting at the letter rating of B, which makes it just one notch above the lowest possible rating of triple C and a long, long way from the maximum of triple A. And we assess mining companies across a few key issues that cover environmental, social and governance risks. For Noralsk, about half of the company's ESG rating is determined through environmental key issues, including toxic emissions and waste, where we look at things like the intensity of the company's sulfur and nitrogen oxide emissions, or if you're a fan of Dr. Seuss, their Sox and Nox emissions. Now Sam, a lot of the coverage on this recent diesel spill has focused on the company's explanation, which is looking to put the blame on thawing permafrost. And that's basically where you have substrate that has been frozen for a long time starting to thaw and, you know, to make the ground increasingly unstable. But there have also been reports that the company's infrastructure is old, like you said, and that the company has not been managing those risks very well. So let's maybe come at it from a slightly different angle. If we take a look at how the company has been managing its environmental risks historically, not only from potentially spilling diesel, but other things like its Sox and Nox emissions, what have you been seeing?
1: The companies for a long time said that they wanted to start cleaning up their environmental performance, and as particularly the SOX emissions. One of the biggest changes they've actually made was they actually closed down a 75-year-old uh, refinery a couple years ago in, I think, 2016 to reduce their emissions. If they're actually going to put the capital forward to modernize their plans and, and install these SOX abatement pl- programs... Um, that's going to be the big question if they can actually successfully do it, and if they can now afford to still do this environmental program, given uh, what may be, you know, more environmental costs related to like the permafrost melting and 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 other structural issues uh, across their infrastructure.
0: Yeah, that, I mean that's a great point there. If the company wants to put in these measures to reduce the environmental risks. It's, it's not actually going to be cheap. And it's almost ironic because by delaying upgrades or overhauls, you know, and saving money in the short term, the company keeps running this aging infrastructure. And then you have an incident like this diesel spill, which looks like it might end up costing the company billions of dollars and, and then putting another stain on their reputation, all at a time when investor scrutiny of, you know, environmental issues is getting more and more feisty. Now, something we, we haven't touched on yet is why this highly pollutive mining company might be on the radar for investors for the right reasons, for good reasons. Uh, you know, and for a non-specialist like me, there's something that's quite ironic about the mining industry more broadly as well. I mean, any technology that's being punted as revolutionary or game-changing often contains metal that's not just plucked out of thin air, right? It's got to come from somewhere. It's
1: very old infrastructure, which is... Producing more nickel than any other company in the world, which is going to be used for, you know, primarily for these next-generation energy technologies. Uh, nickel is still primarily used in steel, but um, the the next major usage is going to be in these these renewable batteries. So there's a lot of contrast there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, contrast is is a pretty good word to use there because you've got this company that is on the naughty list for any investors that have some kind of environmental mandate but those same investors may wanna be investing in the electric vehicle value chain. And top of their shopping list may be nickel mining companies like Norilsk. And and that paradox can be challenging. If you can't divest from this electric vehicle value chain, if you decide that you need to stay invested in a company like Norilsk, you may wanna start thinking about potentially engaging with the company, about the kind of conversations to start having about its practices or environmental aspirations. Now Sam you've, you've got a pretty long history covering the mining industry have you seen evidence of the of that pressure growing over time
1: 10 years ago they didn't even have a sustainability report but over the past 10 years they've been increasingly engaging with us uh, which is usually um, you know a cascade from what they get from from their investors and they have put out a sustainability report of that was about 300 pages long. It's definitely a topic that has been highlighted for the for the company and a topic that's growing in importance for them. Looking at all the environmental problems this company has, there are some clear quality issues. So despite the fact that they are the largest nickel producer in the world and, and their margins are decent, how long is this going to last? And are they going to have, you know, they're going to have a lot of um, demands for for new capital investments to address you know, some of the failing systems that they have at the company and this capex is not necessarily going to be going towards uh, improving their productivity uh, or or reducing their costs. It's going to be really focused on, you know, cleaning up uh, a lot of the liabilities and risks that they're
0: having. And I suppose the company can probably start expecting even more pressure from investors after this recent incident. But more broadly, it seems what has become an accelerating trend is the type of pressure that investors are exerting on companies. Not only to manage their direct, you know, environmental risks or, you know, environmental impacts, but to start providing a clearer picture of where they sit in a risk matrix. And of course, you know, the most universally applicable one at the moment is is climate change. Norilsk is laying the blame for this recent spill on thawing permafrost. So if that is their case, it would surely be an even bigger risk moving forward. So in that vein, are you seeing companies like Norilsk or other mining companies disclosing more detailed breakdowns of their physical climate risks?
1: The the disclosures and discussions around climate change has has definitely been front become front and center for a lot of these mining companies. But it's primarily on the the direct business risks like thermal coal. In terms of actual identifying physical risks, they acknowledge it, and a lot of them have been impacted, especially from you know storm surges, uh, floods, even some forest fires that that have encroached on, on on different businesses. Some of the companies are well-positioned in, in regards to like, uh, as, as areas become more arid, they've been investing a lot in desalination and whatnot. But, um, I, yeah, I mean, permafrost is kind of a new one. It hasn't affected a lot of companies yet. Um, but I think, you know, it, Potentially could over the next few years, uh, but it's much more common actually for the oil and gas industry. There's a lot of pipelines throughout the Arctic and areas that are where there's permafrost, and it could be uh, very costly, in particular for Russian uh, oil and gas companies that have these long pipelines built on permafrost.
0: Now, what happened to Norilsk's thermal power equipment, bad maintenance aside, actually cracks open a much bigger nut than what lies in store for this one mining company. And it's all about what's happening to the Earth's permafrost. The industrialised world has kind of run away with itself so much that even the name permafrost or permanent frost is becoming a bit of a misnomer. You see, the permafrost basically refers to any pieces of ground in the high northern latitudes, think Siberia and Alaska and Greenland, that have been frozen for more than two years. Now some sections of permafrost have been frozen for hundreds of thousands of years and it's up to a mile deep or covering massive areas like the tundra. And when something of that size starts changing it's going to start moving other needles as well. To help us decide which needles to watch I'm joined by Brendan Baker, one of my affable ESG research colleagues who is anchored in MSCI Sydney office. Brendan is known for a couple of things including his skills as a trumpeter in a jazz band. But he moonlights as one of MSCI's climate research multi-tools, keeping tabs on a number of climate-related projects, which makes him a pretty decent bloke for this topic. So Brendan, up front, can you frame for us how you would think about permafrost in terms of climate risks for a company?
2: Yeah, it's interesting bringing up the concept around permafrost melting because you've actually got these changes to, to the actual land, therefore infrastructure is going to be impacted. So when you think about when investors are looking at climate related risks nowadays, um, we, we typically break it down into physical related risks and transition related risks. Physical related risks usually look like um, you can break it down into, say, acute risks and chronic risks. So acute risks could be, um, you know, like a tropical cyclone or a wildfire, whereas chronic related risks are things that are kind of slow moving but have huge impacts. You know, potentially permafrost could be, you know, potentially a chronic risk where it's it's slowly melting and there's going to be long term changes to the actual physical environment. So therefore, any industry that's operating in a region like that, um, the physical related risks and being able to identify which assets are going to be impacted by this is a challenge, but, but a legitimate challenge and something that companies no doubt should be taking note of.
0: Right, exactly. Now, earlier on the show, I mentioned the Exxon Valdez oil spill from around 30 years ago. And one thing that I'm finding really striking is, you know, comparing that with what happened to Norilsk, this Russian mining company, is that now, today, we're not just seeing the one-way flow of influence from a company to the environment like we saw 30 years ago, but also increasingly from the environment via climate change back onto companies. And and permafrost seems like a key warning sign about the shift in this dynamic.
2: You know, the big thing that usually gets mentioned around permafrost is around tipping points. When the permafrost thaws and you've potentially release this huge amount of methane, which is, um, is the major risk, which, you know, climate scientists have been talking about for a long time. So if you've got a Paris agreement that all these you know, 196 countries have ratified to say that, you know, we need to get below a two degree world and then suddenly a tipping point comes along. Suddenly that pressure for countries and companies to reduce their emissions um, is elevated significantly. Mm-hmm. So you may find that if, if something like this happens, if this slow beast suddenly becomes a big, big problem, suddenly those targets that companies may have to reach and these countries' targets um, that they're implementing will become sig- Significantly stronger, um, which could form a greater transition regulatory risk for a lot of these companies globally And it's not just something that would be an isolated issue It would be a global issue that will impact, you know, all industries if, if something like this happens So it's definitely something to be watching
0: Yeah, I mean and, and of course when you have this big regulatory pressure or these transition risks increasing, it can also mean some decent opportunities for companies that can provide a potential solution, right? And for Norosk, there may be a bit of a silver lining in that regard because their, their nickel enables the building of electric cars, which in theory can slow the approach of climate change. So if there's a sudden surge in demand for electric vehicles, Norosk is sitting pretty. But they're also not, because the reason for that demand is because the permafrost is, is thawing right under their feet. So, you know, you've got these sort of two competing factors, um, you know, how do companies even start teasing apart which parts to focus on? And what happens when the timeline of one factor starts moving faster, you know, like maybe the permafrost starts thawing more quickly while electric vehicle demand starts to sort of fall back?
2: No, I think I think it's a really good example. And I think you need to be able to compartmentalize those types of risks that a company needs to look at. And I think the time horizons is a perfect way to do that. So. Um, you know, if you've got a company that is part of the supply chain to, you know, electric vehicles and electrification, that's a really good thing from a decarbonization perspective. But if that company is operating in a region that's going to be impacted by potential changes to the landscape because of climate change, you essentially have to look at it from a physical perspective and a transition perspective. To me, it would be, OK, well, what's that what's that company's physical related risk as adaption plan? Is it actually considering physical related risks over the next 10, 15 years if it's a long term player in that region? You know, a lot a lot of these assets, if you're a mining company, have a long shelf life. They're going to be potentially operating for 20 or 30 years you know, so that there's there's probably a good chance that the permafrost will will change if we're seeing that and that that's continuing to happen. So they should have some level of physical related adaption plan embedded into their risk management practices.
0: Okay, I gotcha. So this is all sounding pretty complex, you know, with lots of overlapping strands. And and if you're an investor, I'm sure it can get really challenging to try and frame these questions clearly. So Brennan, I'm going to put it back onto you. You know, if you were to break down a company like Noralsk, what are the you know the key areas you would be focusing on in terms of understanding you know how something like melting permafrost and climate regulations or opportunities could play out in the long term, and uh, you know what sort of data would you be looking for?
2: The need to actually understand you know a company's broader carbon emission exposure. It's not just its direct operations or electricity. It's you know where it does it have a lot of emissions in its supply chain? Does it have a lot of emissions in its products and services? And where are those types of risks potentially going to eventuate? Um, and at the same time, the physical related risks, as part of our acquisition of Carbon Delta, which is now a carbon risk center, they've got a big physical related model. Um, and as part of that, there's, there's an asset location database. So, you know, that level of transparency hasn't been around and it's only really starting to gain momentum now um, as a lot of these physical related risks are starting to. Um, actually occur, and there's that really big pull from investors to actually understand where does a company operate, what are the types of risks, what's the actual financial impact of that over the next, say, 15 years, and then what does that mean from an investment decision-making? So you've got this kind of broadening of of climate risks assessment from just direct operations and revenue to now where a company operates, um, what are the types of hazards that are facing it, um, and also it's, its full emission supply chain, ups, upstream and downstream, and what that actually means from, um, from a climate change
0: perspective. And that's it for this week. A moment to reflect on how big events like the Exxon Valdez spill or like Norilsk's more recent misstep can catalyze investor action. How investors are pressuring companies to disclose more, to do more, and how, even with increasingly sophisticated data, investors will still have to make difficult decisions and weigh complex trade-offs, like whether to support the electric vehicle value chain by investing in a pollutive nickel mine. And although there is a sense of deja vu about what happened in May 2020 in Russia's Arctic North, and what happened in 1989 off the coast of Alaska, there are some fundamental differences in the state of play. Because it's not just about how companies are driving environmental change, But how environmental change and companies are affecting each other in a high-stakes feedback loop and the passion of some investors to create change has not dulled if anything they seem to be asking much more probing questions of companies and have much sharper tools to cut through to the underlying investment signal first up a massive thanks to sam and brendan for their take on the news with an esg twist an even bigger thank you to you for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this. All and any feedback is great for us. It helps us get better and to get you what you really want to hear. Don't forget to hit that all subscribe button. Thanks again. And I know I sound more and more like a nagging parent. But please, oh please, keep washing those hands.
3: The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc's subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, and this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction and whole